Due to the graphic nature of this podcast discussing human sexuality, anatomy, and practices, listener discretion is advised. I'm Dr. Aaron Spitz, and I'm with SoFlow Vegans. Hey, everybody, welcome back to the SoFlow Vegans podcast. I'm your host, Sean Russell, and founder of SoFlow Vegans. On this episode, we have Dr. Aaron Spitz, who is the author of The Penis Book, a doctor's complete guide to the penis from size to function and everything in between. And you also might have seen Dr. Spitz on the Game Changers documentary that recently came out. We were so excited to have a conversation with him and we pulled no punches. We asked all the questions that you want to hear. So this is going to be an exciting podcast. And if this is your first time listening, we want to welcome you and invite you to go to soflowbeans.com slash podcast to listen to all of our previous episodes. We have an exciting lineup coming in the next couple of weeks. So stay tuned, subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. And we also want to thank our co-host for this episode, Alba Mendez, who was also our media coordinator who helped pull all this together. So if you want to support us, you can also go to soflowvegans.com community to find out all the different ways that you can get involved. And I think that's enough about me and more about you listening to this podcast. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Dr. Aaron Spitz. You are listening to the SoFlow Vegans Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the SoFlow Vegans Podcast. I'm one of your hosts for this wonderful episode, Sean Russell, also founder of SoFlow Vegans. We also have our other co-host. Hey, guys. This is Alba. Welcome back to the podcast. And today we have a very special guest. And um, Alba, as always, do the honors of introducing today's guest. So, guys, we're very excited None other than Dr. Aaron Spitz, who happens to be a urologist. Sean and I saw him when we went to check out the Game Changers, but I did not know that there was a plant-based. Shame on me, but I, you know, now in this age that we do have vegan and plant-based doctors, here he is, all the way from California. Welcome, Dr. Aaron Spitz. Hey, thank you, Sean and Alba. It's great to be here, and I'm really excited to talk about this topic. This is great. Thank you for saying yes. And um, you pretty much responded right away. Your secretary, Jennifer, she was like, yes, Dr. Spitt is interested. And I was like, you, God. Yes. Yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, I'm so thrilled about the information that the Game Changers movie has brought to a large audience. And that audience is just growing exponentially. Mm-hmm. And this is, a, this is information and a message that I've been telling my patients about for about 10 years now. And I'm really privileged to be able to get this information out to my patients on a one-on-one basis. Mm-hmm. So, and even though I can get this information out to my patients on a one-on-one basis, to be able to reach a large audience the way this movie has and the way your podcast can, uh, to me, is really exciting. So, yeah, I jumped on the opportunity right away. So let's go ahead and get started. You have an extensive medical background from the bio you sent us. You are a urologist. And for the ones who do not have a medical background, what is a urologist? So a urologist takes care of the urinary tract, which is the kidneys, ureters, bladder, urethra of men and women, and the male reproductive system. So the testicles, prostate, seminal vesicles, vas deferens, 
And so I actually subspecialize in care of the male reproductive system, both for fertility issues as well as for sexual function issues. So, so I'm curious because I don't have, I'm not from the medical, I have a medical background, but when you are going through medical school, how did you decide that you wanted to be a urologist? Like, how did you decide to go down that pathway? It was kind of an interesting evolution. There's not very many of us who know what a urologist is when we're in college. <laughs> and so I didn't, I didn't start out my young wife saying, <laughs> one day I want to be a urologist. Now, some of us are whose, whose mothers or fathers are urologists because medicine can be a family business like that. But, uh, you know, I entered medical school thinking I might be a uh, family doctor. And then um, I got interested in OBGYN. And then at that time, there was some cutting edge work being done with in vitro fertility at Cornell University Medical College where I was at. And that was very fascinating. And it turns out that there's, of course, a male side to any fertility issue. And I had no um, real understanding about the male side of it. But one of my classmates said, hey, you know, if you're interested in this, why don't you check out urology? And so I did a rotation just to check it out. And it turned out that our urology department at Cornell was an amazing department. The faculty were incredibly, uh, you know, intelligent, dynamic, and very welcoming. And it was a very nurturing and very stimulating environment. And that really is what engaged me. It wasn't a, it wasn't this <laughs> lifelong desire. But once I found myself on the urology rotation, uh, particularly with the innovations that were going on and continue to go on, I was pretty much hooked. Wow. Was this after medical school that you learned or became interested in the vegan slash plant-based lifestyle? You know, I really learned about the plant-based lifestyle uh, from my patients. I had a patient in particular who was very excited about this book about, you know, 10, 11 years ago, 12 years ago, called The China Study. Mm. And by now, everybody oh. has heard of that <laughs> book. And I said, yeah, yeah, that's nice. Um, and he said, um, yeah, you got to read the China study. And so I ordered it and it came and it sat on my desk for a year. <laughs> and, um, a year later he came back in and I was doing this routine checkup for his prostate health and his PSA, which is a blood test that we use as a indicator of possible hidden prostate cancer had dropped down from one level to a much lower level that was very good for him. And I usually only see that with a person taking a particular kind of medication for the prostate that causes that number to go down. And I said, have you started taking finasteride? And he said, no. I said, because your, your PSA went down for no particular reason. And he goes, yeah, it's, it's the vegan diet. It's the China study. Did you read it? And I said, well, I did get the book, but no, I didn't read it. He goes, I have it on on CD in my car, I'm gonna go get it for you. And literally, after I examined him, he wiped up, zipped up, ran downstairs, came back up with a pack of CDs, and it just so happened that weekend I had a long drive with my family to a Boy Scout trip, and we listened to that whole book, four hours there and four hours back. Wow. By the time I got back home, I was completely transformed. I was amazed, and I had buy-in because the author, uh, Dr. Campbell is an alumni of Cornell University where I went as an undergraduate. So I knew he had street cred. Uh, and then I had opportunity to access all the text of all the journals, uh, all of the English journals online through my affiliation with 
UC Irvine Medical uh, Department and went in and basically fact-checked what he was oh, wow. saying and was not only in his, in his own studies full text, but to find that there was a whole new body of literature that didn't exist when I was a medical student that was talking about outcomes with vegan diet, including for prostate cancer from UC San Francisco, where I had done a rotation and the first author was a guy I knew. So again, more buy-in. So with this buy-in building up, it really uh, led me to take a, a much closer look at this. And it just so happened I had a patient who was a doctor, a colleague of mine, whose PSA kept going higher and higher, indicating that he might have a hidden prostate cancer and he had a strong family history. And this poor guy had gone through several biopsies and we were scratching our heads, didn't know what to do. And the guy was only in his 40s with a lot to lose if we missed it. And I immediately thought of him and I said, hey, look, let's try this. Let's try this vegan diet and see what happens with your prostate and your PSA. We'll do it together because I kind of want to do it now just for my own health. And so we both went plant-based. We said, let's see what happens over a six-month period of time. And we did it. We kept each other on it. And six months later, his PSA level dropped in half to normal. And now 10 years later, it's been normal ever since. And he has not developed prostate cancer. And that was very fortunate for me because that won't happen to 100% of patients. But it's very fortunate that it happened with him because then it gave me the full buy-in. And so from that day on, I have been plant-based and I've been recommending it to my patients. And I've seen many patients' PSA go down uh, on the plant-based side. I've even seen a patient or two whose prostate cancer, they actually had it already, got smaller. But what I always tell my patients when I recommend plant-based is I say, look, this may help your condition, but I can't guarantee it. But I promise you it won't hurt you. And even if it doesn't help this particular condition, it's likely to help you in other ways. And I stand by that. And that's how I incorporated it in my practice. Now, do you get any pushback from some of your colleagues who may not have done the research or done the due diligence that you've done? Um, I don't get much pushback because when I approach them with the information, I back it up immediately with the scientific peer-reviewed studies. And they really don't have much to say in return. Um, and the thing is, the vegan information has become more and more pervasive to where people really are a lot more receptive to hearing this. And when you present this information in a scientific way to scientific people who are already hearing about this and, and their minds are already open to it, it's more of a confirmation than it is an objection. Mm. And how about your, where, your, where you practice um, your hospital? How have they received? Um, what so you it's do? very, very interesting. Um, my patient who we did this vegan uh, experiment with, he and I together, he's an anesthesiologist at one of the hospitals I work at. Well, he just was so thrilled and excited because, I mean, he, it was all at stake for him. And so he spread this word throughout the hospital. This word spread to the intensive care uh, doctor. Um, he then invited Colin Campbell to come and give a lecture to the doctors at our hospital, which he did. Um, and then subsequently, we have had vegan meals instituted in the doctor's dining room, vegan options on the menu for the patients. Um, so, uh, the, and, and I'm not responsible for this, but I am the one who got the guy who is responsible for this uh, to the table. And so I'm very excited to see that downstream effect. So yes, in our local community, um, 
there is there has been some real uh, rubber to the road. And the other thing that's very exciting is, is that it turns out that James Wilkes, who is the um, you know the co-producer creator of the Game Changers movies, where you saw me, lightning. Uh, yes, lightning. He lives in my community, and he was reaching out for doctors with some background knowledge in uh, plant-based diet to start his uh, research to uh, create, um, you know, a panel to interview for his future film. And mm -hmm. his own doctor was not, but his own doctor knew that I was mm -hmm. telling all my patients about it because I got very vocal about it with my patients and in the hospital. So people knew that I was into that and he directed James my way. And this was seven years before the film came out, but we never would have met each other if he hadn't been referred to me by his doctor who had heard about me. Funny thing is that same doctor got invited to the screening at Sundance and the next day he went vegan seven yeah. years later and is still vegan now. What I loved about the Game Changers is that it was based on science and research. The benefits of a vegan diet on cardiovascular health or the immune, the autoimmune disorders, but we have not really discussed the effects on the male anatomy. That is why I was pushing Sean to have you come on. And one thing you said is that this is going to wake up people who have penises and is going to wake up people who love people with penises. Let's talk about the structure and sexual reproductive system of the male anatomy and is a prostate part of it? It is, yeah. So the prostate is something that guys think typically think of as, you know, uh, an issue for old guys. But the prostate is actually primarily an organ for reproduction. It creates fluids that are essential for semen. And that's what its function is for, is to, is to produce ingredients that enable semen and the sperm in the semen to function. And as we get older and we no longer are trying to have children, it starts to get diseased and causes problems with our urination because it surrounds the urethra or the channel that carries our urine from the bladder out to the part of the urethra that's running through the penis. So it's like a tunnel. And that tunnel dumps fluid into the urethra as part of semen. And then when we get older, it's squeezing off that channel, making it harder to pee for some of us. And it turns out that populations of people on the planet who eat less animal products tend to have less prostate problems when they're older. But what's really interesting and exciting about what was highlighted in the Game Changers film is there's also benefits to your penis, to your sexual function, to your erections. So let me talk a little bit about that structure, the penis. It is comprised of two cylinders side by side that make up the shaft. And those cylinders are kind of like uh, long balloons, if you will. And they fill up not with air, but with blood. And the arteries that pump the blood into them are very small, about one millimeter in diameter. And when we get excited, sexually excited, aroused, um, our brain sends a signal down our spine and nerves that then go to those blood vessels and cause them to open up and allow more blood to rush in. And then inside those cylinders is this spongy network of tiny little blood vessel walls. And they all can open or close to allow the blood in. And so an erection is a bunch of blood flowing in. And the key is how well that blood can flow. And 
depending on what we eat and how sick or healthy we are, as the years go by, that little one millimeter artery will start to narrow off. And those tiny little blood vessels that fill those two cylinders can start to get fibrotic and stiff and not able to open up and hold blood as well. And it turns out that a plant-based diet is, from what I can tell from the science, the best diet to keep your blood flow flowing, to keep those arteries healthy, not get fibrotic, not close up, and therefore to keep your erection strong and healthy. And in the Game Changers movie, we did an experiment to see if eating a plant-based diet did allow for better blood flow overnight in a guy's um, subconscious, uh, unconscious erections than eating a plant-based. And we special measuring device, and the results were quite remarkable. Question for you regards to that. You mentioned the plant-based diet. Now, is this a whole foods plant-based diet, or is this more the absence of meat, dairy products? Like if somebody's eating like junk food, do they still have the same effect? All right. So first of all, let me say I'm not a nutritional scientist. I'm a urologist. So even though um, I have done an extensive review of the scientific literature for my own purposes, for my own patients, um, I want to avoid getting too far out on any particular limb. And the way I approach it is I keep it very simple. I say, eat whole foods, okay? I say, you can have them cooked, you can have them raw, but try to eat them as much as possible in their whole state, and it's very unlikely you will go wrong. Because once you start to get into the constituent ingredients of plants, uh, and you start getting into the extracted ingredients of plants, you can start to find yourself in a very unhealthy place, right? Because a donut is vegan but a donut is not going to give you good health if that's, you know, that's your diet. Sugar is plant-based, okay? But we know that granulated sugar is not going to give you good health if that's the basis of your diet. Processed sugar. Right. And so if you if you eat plants the way they occur, cooked, raw, it's really unlikely that a study is going to pop up sometime in the near future saying, whoops, we were wrong about vegetables or uh-oh. <laughs> Uh, you know, we have to recall fruit. I think you're really on the most solid ground possible. So yes, it is all about a whole food plant-based diet. Okay. Now, the other question, one of the things that we wanted to discuss was circumcision. So that's something that I probably have never heard brought up other than, you know, choosing to do it as a child and all, all that, all that stuff. So what, are there benefits to circumcision? Should you, should parents not circumcise their children? What are your thoughts on that? So circumcision is a very controversial topic, and there's a lot of very strong emotions that run around this topic. And uh, it is controversial, and there is, it is open for debate. But, but one has to be careful not to um, allow oneself to take it to an extreme, or they may find themselves trapped in, uh, in a state of distress that is really not warranted at all. And what I mean by that is there are people who have been circumcised uh, when they were children, say, or infants, who are adults now, and are convinced that they have been deprived of a normal, healthy sexual experience 
because of their circumcision, that they have less sensation in their penis, that um, they experience sex um, in a less satisfying way. And if you have that belief in your mind, whether you were circumcised or not, you will, you will be at risk of manifesting that and, and you know, being stuck that way. But when it comes to sexual function, this issue has been studied scientifically and studies of penis sensitivity, pleasure, uh, function between circumcised men and non-circumcised men show no difference. And so I just wanna put that out there up front. Um, if a person is circumcised, they have not been uh, deprived of a normal sexual experience, fortunately. And I say fortunately because for many people, uh, circumcision was never their choice. It was part of their culture or it was um, done for a preemptive health reason. Uh, and so it is what it is. But fortunately, the studies show that these people are not actually harmed. Having said that, the decision to circumcise somebody or, or to get circumcised um, is controversial because in modern society with modern hygiene and access to uh, you know, plumbing and, 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 and the ability to bathe, et cetera, uh, and in our climate that's not so tropical here, um, the advantages of circumcision are less. Uh, the advantages of circumcision in general, and in particular in a population that doesn't have such modern access, is that it does reduce the risk of the child or the infant getting urinary tract infections. And sometimes urinary tract infections in an infant or small child can be very dangerous, uh, can be very dangerous to their kidneys. Um, so it is the case that, that infants or children who are circumcised do get urinary tract infections less often. But because of the ability to um, intercede, it's not as if if a child isn't circumcised, they are then at some serious health risk. Not the case at all in our current modern society. Um, so I think that that is one interesting you know, debate to look at. Another uh, interesting health advantage of circumcision, but again, not necessarily required, is it is the case that in parts of Africa where AIDS is very prevalent, if you do circumcisions on those men, it does reduce their ability to contract HIV because the skin of the foreskin in an uncircumcised man, that underneath skin, is thinner and more delicate. It doesn't have the same tough layer that the shaft skin does that's exposed. And so circumcision can provide a protective effect against contracting HIV in, in this population of people. But you can also not have sex, you can also use condoms, so I'm not saying that one must get a circumcision, but scientifically there are these, these things to, to discuss and consider. And, and real, another point on circumcision, I'm, out of curiosity, how has it, how's it, how's it trended? Like, the majority of um, people get circumcised, they're not get circumcised, like what is it, I don't have that frame of reference. You know, it, it seems to be trending down, and I think it's trending down because of the increasing modernization of society. Uh, one other one other health benefit I, got, I forgot to mention is that for infants who are circumcised, they do have a, a much reduced lifetime risk of ever getting penis cancer. They, they almost never get penis cancer if they're circumcised as an infant, and it's probably because of whatever cumulative exposure in that delicate undersurface of the skin, which is delicate and, and can absorb toxins or, 
or bacteria or viruses that, such as HPV that can lead to penis cancer, um, you don't have that same degree of ability to get exposed to a, a penis cancer causing. Now, penis cancer is very rare in a modern industrialized society. <laughs> it's going to be a lot more common in sort of a rural equatorial region, hot, moist, not a lot of hygiene, not a lot of access to care. But having said that, that's another one of the, the advantages. But I think it is trending down because we are getting more modernized and also culturally. Um, there seems to be less emphasis placed on it for those who are doing it for health reasons. I think there's less emphasis placed on it these days. And for those who are doing it for religious cultural reasons, there seems to be a very gradual but steady departure from traditional religious practices. And so I think for both of those reasons, you're seeing a trending down in, in, in the Western industrialized countries, at least. Then what exactly is the purpose of having a foreskin? Well, the foreskin does cover the head of the penis, and I suppose it, that may serve a protective function to the head of the penis and the urethra if we were to be, you know, wandering around without clothing, uh, you know, in a natural environment. Okay, that is an interesting function. I, I'll comment on that a little bit further. Um, perhaps you're aware that cervical cancer in women is, is mainly linked to HPV virus. And so is penis cancer in men. But men who are circumcised as infants, although they do get genital warts, they do get HPV infections, um, they, they almost never get actual penis cancer, whereas women can get genital warts and they can get cervical cancer. Of course, these, uh, this risk has been greatly reduced with the availability now of a vaccine for HPV. Mm. That is, this is it's now commonly available. This is the vaccine. I think that you take it before 26, no? Uh, actually, I think they're giving it now to um, people in their uh, early teens uh, okay. to really try to preempt uh, prior to any exposure. Because HPV is a very prevalent virus. It's probably, um, it probably exists in 70 to 80 percent of single sexually active human beings. But with the advent of this vaccination, we'll probably see that decline significantly. And what exactly, um, what are the health uh, impacts of HPV, like if someone doesn't get it treated? It's really just cosmetic unless you have the strain that causes cervical cancer and you can't tell by looking. So it's always a good idea to get it treated. Hmm. We opened up our social media for our followers to ask questions. And one of those questions was about the all important hormone for men, testosterone, and if it increases or decreases on a vegan diet. Yes, no, testosterone is really on uh, a lot of guys' minds. Uh, a lot of that has to do with marketing. Um, but to be fair, testosterone is a real issue for many, many men, and it's probably under-recognized in the population where it should be, and it's probably overhyped in the population where it shouldn't be. What do I mean by that? Most young guys have normal testosterone, but you know, they hear an ad, are you, you know, not as uh, sexually powerful as you used to be, or you know, are you not killing it at the gym? It could be your testosterone. Well, if you're 25, it's probably not. Uh, but if you're 45, it could be. Um, having said that, you really can't change your testosterone very meaningfully by a particular food that you eat. 
Now you can improve your testosterone by being lean because body fat does convert testosterone to estradiol. And so an obese person can have a lower testosterone than they would have if they were lean. But the exact type of food, whether it's steak or whether it's broccoli, doesn't really change your testosterone in a meaningful way. And that's good news for vegans because that means vegans are not gonna get a lower testosterone by not eating meat. In fact, it's, it's nothing uh, of, 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 of that relationship whatsoever. When they do studies, they see that the testosterone levels in vegans actually may be a little bit higher, but their sex hormone binding globulin, which is a, another molecule that travels with testosterone and kind of keeps it from being active, is also a little bit higher, which is fine. And what the net effect is, is that the active testosterone in their bodies is the same, but certainly no lower than in omnivores or carnivores. So there's no concern that by going vegan, you're going to become feminized. Um, there's no concern that your estrogen is going to go up and your testosterone is going to go down uh, and that you'll be less virile, less sexual, uh, less fertile. Uh, nothing of the case. What are normal levels of testosterone? So testosterone has a very wide range. Um, normal levels of testosterone can range from the mid 200s if your sex hormone binding globulin is very low and, and is not sucking it up out of your system to a thousand um, and anywhere in between. And because it's such a broad range, we have to take the number and the patient's or the person's symptoms and evaluate both of those together to understand if they're relatively low, even though they're not absolutely low. But in some cases, people are absolutely low. They're, they're below the lower end of the normal range and they clearly um, would benefit from bringing their testosterone up. Because if your testosterone is, is truly too low, there are long-term consequences that are well beyond just your sexual performance. Uh, your bone density will weaken over time and you could suffer pathological fractures, meaning you broke your bone for not a good reason. And that's called osteoporosis when your bones get thin like that. Also, your mental focus and acuity uh, diminishes and, and your ability to process sugar and your ability to not become diabetic diminishes. And in absolute terms, your lifespan is shorter. So guys who have lower than normal testosterone untreated over many years actually have a shorter lifespan than if it was corrected or if they had normal testosterone. Wow. And how would someone know if they're, I mean, you mentioned some of the symptoms, but if someone feels fine, is there, are there like signs, precursors to that? If somebody feels fine, they probably don't have to dig much deeper unless they've had an injury to their testicles or they're on medications that affect testosterone, some other reason that they could be at risk of having low testosterone. But if somebody feels um, low energy, uh, falling asleep after dinner, um, finding that they're losing, they're losing their muscle tone and they're gaining abdominal fat, even though they're exercising just the same, uh, and a very big symptom is difficulty with their erections although that can be due to other causes entirely. But any of those symptoms 
should motivate them to come in and see their doctor. And then what doc the doctor will do is they'll draw some blood tests that'll tell them if their testosterone is low or relatively low, and then they can go from there. What kind of blood tests? It's a blood test that measures testosterone directly. And in my practice, I will also look at some other additional hormones, including the sex hormone binding globulin, to get a more precise view. But just a simple testosterone test alone is sufficient. And this is something that really ought to be valued and demonstrated before a guy gets started on testosterone. Because if you go into um, some sort of provider of testosterone and they get you started on it, what happens is the testosterone that you take, whether it's a shot or a gel or a patch, because you shouldn't take oral testosterone, that's bad for your liver, but shots, gels, patches. Once you start on testosterone, it shuts your body's own production off. It puts it into a hibernation mode. And if your testosterone was normal to begin with, and you stop the testosterone to check and see what it was, it's going to be extremely low because it's going to be shut off. And it can mm -hmm. take several months to come back on. Yeah. So before you get started in a treatment that's really meant to be lifelong, testosterone therapy, whether it's a shot or a gel, does not make you produce more of your own. It just replaces what you were missing and shuts yours down and takes it over. It also shuts off your sperm. So if you are interested in having children or more children, you don't want to go in and get started on testosterone. You want to do this through a doctor and in a, in a very stepwise fashion, because if I have a patient who's got low testosterone and wants to have a child, I have other medications I can give him to boost his testosterone, but not use testosterone. So when does testosterone start to drop the levels and where is testosterone produced in or at? Yeah, so testosterone is produced primarily by the testicles. A little bit of testosterone is produced in the adrenal glands, which are little glands that sit on top of the kidneys and have a lot of hormonal regulatory function. But the vast majority is produced in the testicles themselves. And the amount of testosterone production does not really correlate to the size of the testicles. It's really only a very small amount of the cells in the testicles that are making testosterone. The vast majority of the size of the testicles is from the sperm in them. So a man can have relatively small testicles and have very normal testosterone levels. And I've seen some guys with large, testo large testicles, but not very high testosterone levels. So it's hard to know even just by looking down there, but that's where it's made. And it's made under the control of the pituitary gland, which is in your brain, just behind your eyeballs, sort of, uh, if you shoved a pencil up your nose, you'd hit it. Mm. And this is, this is a part of your brain that secretes hormones that regulate your testicles to make more or less testosterone or more or less sperm. And there's this ongoing communication, kind of like a, like a thermostat in your house. When the testicles have made enough testosterone, the pituitary stops sending the signal, kind of like when the house has gotten cool enough, the air conditioner shuts off. And then when it gets a little too warm again, it kicks in again. When your testosterone drops a little bit, your pituitary fires up and releases that hormone. So if a guy has a problem with his testicles themselves, they're injured and they can't make testosterone, his testosterone can be too low. Or if a guy has a problem with the control center in his pituitary, maybe a bad head trauma, or he had to have surgery in that area, or he has a genetic condition, or he's on medications, chronic opioids, for example, that suppress that control center, he can have low testosterone. And then all of this can come sort of 
degrade over time just with age. And so when a man gets to age 40, there is a increased chance that he may be starting to enter that time of his life where his testosterone levels may start to drop. Not all men's testosterone levels drop below normal, but most men's testosterone levels do drop through the normal range and some percentage of them will benefit from boosting it back up. And as women, do we have testosterone? Yes, women have testosterone, but at very low levels. I mean, uh, if a guy's testosterone is 500, a woman's testosterone might be five to 15. Okay, so, so much lower levels, but it does play a role in women's uh, sexual function and uh, reproductive health, but it's not as well defined and the normal ranges are, are not as clearly defined. And I would caution women from going on a little dab of their boyfriend or husband's testosterone because that's really not a very um, healthy and careful way to go about things. <laughs> does, that, does that same relationship um, exist with estrogen in men? Is it, is it low or is it completely different? It's similar. It's like a mirror. However, the estrogen levels in men tend to be a little bit higher than the testosterone levels in women. And we have come to learn recently that estrogen plays an important role in bone strength and bone density. Guys will be under the misconception that the more testosterone, the better, and the less estrogen, the better. And we'll want to drive down that estrogen with aromatase inhibitors, estrogen blockers. But if you drive your estrogen too low, you'll start to run the risk of weak bones. Everything is a balance. That's why many men are afraid of even eating soy products because they feel like the estrogen, they don't understand that that is not a true estrogen, that is bovine estrogen. That That's right. That does affect, but soy is phytoestrogen that has nothing to do with our receptors. And the proof is in the studies where they actually look at the testosterone levels and the hormone levels of vegans versus omnivores and find no difference. Because estrogen, if it was elevated, would have a negative effect on testosterone production. It's like part of that thermostat. And as the estrogen goes higher, it'll dial down the production of testosterone. And we don't see that when we study it. So you can sit around all day long and say, well, I think this is going to hurt you or I think this is going to help you. But what you really want to do is look at the data and the data allows us to be very comfortable with the vegan diet in terms of its effects on testosterone. So let's go ahead and get into now that we're moving on from testosterone, the male libido. Well, the male libido is very much tied to testosterone. Testosterone stimulates the centers of the brain that creates sexual desire. And if a man's testosterone level is too low, he will have a lack of sexual desire as well as weakness in his erections. Now, libido, because it arises in the brain, is pretty complicated. And it's not just testosterone that may be at play when a person is suffering from low sexual desire, but it is often the key. And in those men, when you bring their testosterone levels from low to normal, their libido returns. But there can be men with completely normal testosterone and low libido due to stress, due to other behavioral or psychological issues that are getting in the way of them feeling sexual desire to a particular partner or in general. So let's talk about a little bit about that now that we can move on to diet and erections. 
Um, you mentioned that the vessels in the penis are about what is it one millimeter? Thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. One millimeter. One millimeter in diameter. So that opening the blood flows through. Yes. Diameter. So that means that they're smaller than the vessels in the heart. Yeah. So you know everybody knows that if you eat poorly, you run the risk of getting heart disease and a heart attack. Yes. And everybody's familiar with um, the concept of uh, plaque plaques in your coronary arteries, plaques squeezing off the flow of blood through your coronary arteries. Well, those coronary arteries are five times larger than the arteries that are pumping blood into your penis. So what that means is if you're eating in an unhealthy way, long before your coronary arteries block off and give you a heart attack, your penis arteries are already blocking off and making your erections weaker. And that's what people know. They know problems with their erections several years before they get chest pain and heart attacks. So we know that uh, problems with erections is like a canary in the coal mine. It's, oh. it's an early warning sign. And what we've also come to learn is that uh, a plant-based diet reduces the degree of narrowing of the arteries of the coronary arteries of the heart. And we suspect it also reduces the narrowing of the arteries to the penis. And we suspect that any blood vessel in your body is going to be uh, less diseased on a plant-based diet than on a uh, animal-based diet. And there's been experiments that, that verify that to one degree or another. And studies of men with erectile dysfunction where they look at the men who eat more vegetables and fruits versus the men that eat less, even when they have diabetes, which is already a problem for erections, show that the group that eats the most plant-based foods has the least erectile dysfunction. So that means that their erections are longer and harder. Well, they last longer they last and they longer. stay harder, but there's no food that will make the penis actually bigger, okay? There's no pill, there's no medication. But what you can do is have better blood flow and so a, a more completely rigid erection, and that's bigger in that sense. Um, so, based on better for your and circulation is key to your erections. Testosterone is important too, your nerve function. Testosterone is important too, your nerve function is important. But the, the, the most important element is, is your circulation and the blood flow of the penis and plant based diet is going to give you the best circulation. What about smoking and alcohol? So smoking is very bad for your blood vessels and your circulation. It causes what we call hardening of the arteries. It causes the arteries to get fibrotic and stiff, so they can't open up and allow blood to flow through them. And it leads to high blood pressure, as well as heart attacks. And for sure, it leads to erectile dysfunction. Smokers have a much higher incidence of losing their erections younger, having trouble with their erections because of the hardening of the arteries. Um, a modest degree of alcohol intake, which I would define as say five beverages a week or less. Um, I don't think there's strong evidence that ha that has a negative effect on mm -hmm. sexual function, but people who are alcoholic or consuming a large amount of alcohol will start to cause their testosterone to decline and their estrogen to increase. Uh, and that in and of itself will have a directly negative effect on their erections. Plus, all that uh, alcohol exposure starts to damage their nervous system. And you need a healthy nervous system to have healthy erections. 
and it's a generalized toxin, so their blood vessels aren't gonna be so good either. Plus, their deteriorated nutritional intake. When you're consuming a lot of alcohol, you're typically not consuming a lot of healthy foods along with all of that play a role. And in, in terms of smoking, are we talking about um, cigarette smoking or what if people are taking like medicinal marijuana or vaping marijuana? Or is that in the same category? Well, to be very specific, the data that we have about uh, smoking and erectile dysfunction is really centered on uh, tobacco cigarettes. But I would contend that inhaling marijuana smoke probably does expose you to certain constituents, not necessarily the THC or the CBD, but other constituents in a burning, smoldering leaf that potentially are not going to be very good for your lungs or your arteries. But having said that, I'm not speaking to marijuana specifically. Um, I'm really speaking more to cigarettes. And I think that uh, you know the, the THC, which you're getting when you're vaping or in edibles, um, is not necessarily linked to erectile dysfunction in moderate usage. But in excessive uh, chronic usage, um, there may be an association between um, marijuana and a lower testosterone level and, and lower sexual function and lower fertility. But at the moderate level, I don't think the data is very clear on that or very very convincing on that. So I won't I won't go so far as to say that. Now that we're in the still in the penis, let's talk about semen. Um, we have we have one of the questions that we got on our inbox was about semen taste, the potency of semen on a plant based diet or not. Well, I can't speak from experience on this, but I did do some research into it for the purposes of writing my book chapter. And uh, what I found was that of those who are connoisseurs, they note that semen after a person is consumed. So um, for, those of the, for those who are in the know when it comes to semen taste, they'll report that semen tastes more bitter um, in a guy who is consuming a lot of uh, animal products or a lot of uh, animal-based protein supplements. And it tastes lighter or sweeter, if you will, in a guy who is consuming mainly plant-based foods. And I think that has to do with some of the molecules and amino acids and other constituents that are increased or decreased in your semen, which is secretions from your prostate, from your seminal vesicles, which are derived in large part from your blood, which gets its ingredients from the food that you put into your intestine that gets absorbed into your blood. So what you eat definitely has an effect on qualitative aspects like taste of your semen and vegans, so to speak, come out on top. Nice. <laughs> and um, as far as pregnancy and fertility and veganism, how, how do those marry up? So some studies have been conducted looking at how diet relates to sperm count or quality or fertility. And it turns out that guys who eat mostly plant-based diets, because the study wasn't done with vegans specifically, but the guys who ate more plant-based diet and less animal products actually had higher quality sperm, more fertile looking sperm. This is a study done out at Harvard 
a few mm. years back. And it also turns out that there appears to be a real benefit to consuming nuts for your nuts, and in particular, walnuts. But handfuls of nuts, mixed nuts, walnuts, do seem to correlate to an improvement in some of the, the qualitative aspects of sperm and semen. And nuts, of course, are plant-based. And so I always recommend to my fertility patients to try to consume a diet that is as plant-based as possible, including plenty of nuts, and to avoid processed foods, refined sugars, and of course, goes without saying, uh, animal-heavy meals. Sperm and semen, same or different? Sperm is an ingredient in semen. So when, you when a guy ejaculates, that fluid that's coming out has sperm cells inside it. But the sperm cells comprise about 10% of the volume of that fluid. Talking about semen, another question we got is about ejaculation and male orgasms. Can you talk a about the structures? Sure. So an orgasm is a very complex uh, process. Uh, there are several centers in the brain that all have to coordinate. And then they communicate to a specific center in the lower back, in the spine, that then will trigger the ejaculation, okay? So there are hormones uh, that come into play. There are neurotransmitters that aren't hormones that also come into play. And a threshold of excitement of these various uh, molecules, some turning things on, some turning things off, <clears throat> some are brakes that are lifted, some are accelerators that are pressed, has to be reached. And that threshold will be reached by a combination of sensory signals coming in from the, the skin of the penis, um, other sensory signals coming in from the skin of other parts of your body, uh, visual stimulation, auditory stimulation, maybe olfactory, what you're smelling, uh, good or bad, um, all these things bouncing around in your brain, then um, finally reaching a threshold that allows that climax, that neurological event of climax to happen, and a signal sent to the center in your spine that coordinates a contraction of muscles around the base of the penis that squeeze that urethra, that passageway, to squeeze out the semen. And before that even happens, the nerves are stimulating the testicles and the vas deferens, which are the tubes that carry the sperm from the testicles up, stimulating the vas deferens to start squeezing that sperm up into the urethra and stimulate the prostate to start squeezing its juice out into the urethra and the seminal vessels to squeeze their juice out of the urethra. You've got this cocktail of sperm seminal vesicle fluid and prostate fluid all in your urethra, and then the bladder's got to squeeze shut, and then the muscles start squeezing at the base of the penis, and because the bladder's squeezed shut, the only place that semen can go is out the tip of the penis, and all of that is coordinated and happening with orgasm and ejaculation. Now, a guy can have an ejaculation without feeling much of an orgasm, and a guy can feel a great orgasm without having ejaculation. The two don't always go together, but those are unusual circumstances. I heard that uh, tantric practitioners can actually do something called dry coming or dry uh, orgasms. Is that yes, something? Yes, I, I honestly don't have much knowledge about tantric sexual practices. 
So I really can't comment on that. Um, but maybe it'll be something that I look into down the line. I'm a big fan of the wet spot, though. That is good to know. Sean? All right. So let's talk about sexuality and sex and the elderly. Because we, uh, you know, we should all be fortunate to do be, get older in life. So what can we expect when we get older in age in terms of that? So I have many elderly patients who are sexually active. And elderly people enjoy sex. They don't, they don't necessarily have sex as frequently as younger people, but that's a normal physiological change. But they do have sex and they do enjoy it. The problem is, as we get older, depending on how we eat and how well we stay, we will lose our ability to have sex naturally. Uh, that is to say, guys certainly can because of those arteries in the blood flow of the penis. But there are fortunately for many of my patients are remedies for that, which range from pills like Viagra or Cialis to injections, to vacuum devices, to implants. So it's possible to help these men, but the very best scenario is to be able to maintain your own natural sexual function into your older years. It's only a small percentage of patients that do, but they tend to be my healthier patients in general. They tend to be free from other disease states, free from diabetes and obesity and heart disease. And it's often because they've taken very good care of themselves. Uh, oftentimes they, they are more plant-based eaters, um, routinely exercise their whole life. Uh, and so be advised, as you get older, you will still want sex but it may become increasingly difficult unless you take preventative maintenance measures now. The interesting thing is that when uh, I worked in the ER and I was a travel nurse for a while, you'll be surprised what comes in into that ER. I've seen it all, penis pumps, injection. There's ones that you can pump it up, There's injections that go in. There is uh, multiple different types of sexual practices that you're like, how, when did this happen? But um, and most of them are older patients. They're 70 and above. And they always tell me, it's like, oh, just because I'm old does not mean that I am going to stop having sex. And this is my fix. And That's right. And, and these things are all uh, actual valid medical treatments. Mm -hmm. But they can, be, they can be stigmatized or a person can have street knowledge of things that leads to dangerous practices or, even worse, avoidance of getting treated because they think that these things they've heard about are somehow perversions or somehow dirty. When, when properly instructed and properly used, they allow uh, people to restore intimacy and closeness and a, a component of their life that's really wonderful. And in my book, the penis book, I actually go through all of these different devices and treatments and explain how they work and when they're appropriate. And an interesting fact is that Viagra, when it was uh, first tested out, was originally going to be a cardiac medicine, but patients on the clinical trials, they discovered that it helped with their erections. A lot of people don't know that. Well, they tried to shut the trials down because they saw that it really wasn't working all that great for the heart. And the patients revolted and said, no, you can't stop this trial. <laughs> and the question was, well, why not? And they said, well, there's this really cool side effect I'm getting. And that's how it got discovered. Yep. So let's move on to issues that can cause havoc with your sex life, with erections. I mean, you mentioned we've mentioned already diabetes and cardiovascular issues can cause you to not have such an active sex life. That's Why right. is that? 
You already mentioned the plaque, but why diabetes? So diabetes, which for the vast majority of Americans is a consequence of how they eat, okay? Uh And if you eat a whole food plant-based diet, your risk of getting diabetes is dramatically less than if you don't. Uh Uh, Now, genetic type two diabetes, and that's the majority of people have type two diabetes. Type one diabetes is usually in early, uh, in our early life, it's an autoimmune reaction. The pancreas is destroyed, can't make insulin. You can't reverse that, you can't change that. But type two diabetes is, is very preventable and very reversible with mm-hmm. diet. And obesity uh, and diabetes go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. And so if you, if you pursue a diet that reverses your diabetes and your obesity or prevents you from getting it in the first place, you're gonna preserve your circulation and your, and your nervous system and your sexual function. Diabetes, this excess sugar that's in your blood that shouldn't be there causes havoc on all your tissues. And it takes those blood vessels, those delicate little blood vessels that are inside the chambers of the penis and the blood vessels that are leading to the penis as well as the ones in your heart, all over your body, and it diseases them. It makes them age prematurely. They get old fast, they get fibrotic. They get stiff and they can't fill with blood anymore the way they used to. And so you have poor circulation to the penis and erectile dysfunction, and that's and also those the nerves of your penis get disease, and you have less sensation in your penis, and your ability to ejaculate diminishes, and you can't ejaculate normally anymore. So all of these are a consequence of having too many sugar molecules circulating in your blood, wreaking havoc on all the cells they come in contact with, and you can reverse or prevent that to a large degree with how you eat and how you maintain your weight and save not just your penis, but you know, save your feet from getting chopped off or your leg having to be cut off, which can happen with severe diabetes and poor yeah. circulation and infection and gangrene or going blind or having a heart attack. I mean, you know, the, the list goes on and on. Let's talk about things that can affect the penis itself, like Peyronie's disease. What is this condition? Peyronie's disease is a, it's a very common condition. It's about 10 to 12% of guys. And it tends to occur more in one's 40s and on, but it can be in younger guys as well, less commonly. And oh. it's a condition. It's a condition where the penis gets a deformity when it becomes erect. And that deformity may be a bend, a severe bend up or to the side or down, or a twist or an indentation, or maybe even a combination of all three. A twist? Yes, it can, it, can, it can bend, or it can even bend and rotate, or it can bend back on itself. And what is happening in the Peyronie's disease, we call it Peyronie's disease, it's not a disease like something that gets worse and worse over time. condition. Okay. But what's happening here is those two cylinders, they have a lining. And inside the lining, of course, is the blood vessels in the blood. But that lining is a combination of collagen and elastin woven in a special way that allows mm-hmm. it to expand lengthwise mm-hmm. and widthwise. Mm-hmm. So you get length mm-hmm. and girth when you're erect, kind of symmetrically all along those two cylinders. And the Peronis is a spot somewhere on the cylinders where the collagen is built up abnormally. And there's not a lot of elastin and it's all disorganized. And that spot 
will not stretch and expand the way all the rest of the cylinder is stretching and expanding, and therefore it kinks it. It makes it kink around that spot that won't expand. And it can wow. kink in one direction or another or a couple directions, or it may just not expand. It'd be an indentation on one side or both, but it's a mechanical situation affecting that lining. And it might be due to a prior injury during sex, but in the majority of cases, you can't trace it back to an obvious injury. So for the majority of guys, it just seems to come on spontaneously. And when it first starts, you'll notice most guys have some pain in that spot, and then they develop a little lump they can feel, but not always. And then the uh -huh. pain eventually goes away, but the deformity, um, it stays. There are about 17, 18% of guys who are very lucky and it comes and then it goes away on its own. Just a weird thing that happens over maybe the course of a year or so. But for the majority of men, once it occurs, it stays there or in some cases will get worse over the course of a year or two. It does not appear to be related to diet. It appears to be more related to either trauma or some other mechanism that we know of. But the better your diet is and the better your circulation, probably the better the chances you have of having good heart erections that won't buckle and get traumatized during sex. Um, or, you know, with any condition that you're going to get treated, you want to have as healthy a body as possible to respond to it. But I can't make a direct link between diet and Peyronie's disease. Now, Peyronie's disease can be treated, it can be fixed, but it is a mechanical solution. It's not a pill. It's not a medication. It's treating that spot that won't stretch by making it more flexible with injections into it of special medications or traction on the penis to stretch that area out or surgery to cut that area out and replace it with a graft that is more uh, symmetrical. Are they still able to have sex with peronies? Yes. Most men, most men can still have sex, but it may be uncomfortable for their partner or for them if the peronies is severe enough. It just depends on how severe the, the, the angulation or the deformity is and how the woman's anatomy is and how it is accommodated. Uh, but even for men for whom sex is not painful, it's very psychologically painful for, for most men who have this. And it can really be a problem that they keep quiet for a long time. And it's only recently that more uh, public attention has been turned right. towards it and that it's more normalized. But I've seen men over the years who've kept this quiet for six, seven, 10 years. And also urologists like myself are only recently becoming more skilled at treating it in non-surgical ways. Mm -hmm. So we're now getting to that point where more patients are coming in and more patients are getting treated. Wow. And I think, I think kind of winding down the podcast, what are some tips that you have for men to make sure that their penis and their testicles are in as good as health as possible. Yes. So uh, as I mentioned, I have this book called The Penis Book. And in there, I have sort of five tips, um, you know, for maximum penis health because everybody likes numbers. But let's just kind of go through what these what these general tips are. And some of them we've talked about and some of them we haven't. So I'll try to be concise. Uh, first of all, it's food. I call it go fork yourself. So try to eat a plant-based, whole food, plant-based diet, because that's going to give you maximum benefit to your circulation. Um, another one is sleep. Getting a good night's sleep 
is important because not getting enough sleep can result in lower testosterone levels. And if you have interrupted sleep, say from sleep apnea, that can cause increased adrenaline levels and adrenaline shuts off the flow of blood to your penis because it increases the blow to your heart and lungs to deal with some kind of stress, okay? Also, pornography. Frequent pornography viewing, and, I, and, and some people are viewing it daily, that kind of frequent pornography viewing will blunt down those complex brain centers that I described earlier and make them not respond normally. They'll actually physically shrink them. So it's harder for you to become sexually aroused or to reach a sexual climax. It's reversible, but it requires going cold turkey from the porn. So cutting out porn is another tip. Um, avoiding toxins, cigarettes, excess alcohol, uh, excess recreational drug use. Also, staying healthy because medications that you may require for your medical condition can have side effects on your erections. Medications for blood pressure uh, are very commonly known to affect your erections and make them weaker. Also, if you have to go on chemotherapy for cancer, wow. um, that's going to injure your testicle and can lower your testosterone. How do you stay healthy? Well, one of the easiest ways is what you choose to eat. So eating a whole food plant-based diet, keeping yourself healthier, reducing your need for medications, keeps your sexual function better. All right. Okay, women, as women, we are told to do the exercise or vaginal weightlifting. Do men have something along this lines that they can uh, do with yes. their PC muscles? I'm glad you brought that up because that was the one thing I forgot and I knew I was forgetting something. I call it sexercise. So exercise is sexercise because exercise is good for your circulation, good for your penis. But a particular exercise, which is the Kegel exercise that women do to help um, uh, counteract incontinence, to help keep their pelvic floor tight, those same exercises help men with their erections because they exercise those muscles that are around the base of the penis that squeeze. And those are the muscles that squeeze when you ejaculate, but they also are squeezing while you're getting an erection. And when they squeeze around the base of the penis, they help keep the blood trapped in the penis that's being pumped into it. And so healthy, strong pelvic floor muscles help guys have healthier, stronger erections. And a Kegel squeeze is simply when you squeeze in a way to stop yourself from peeing or pooing on yourself. That's a Kegel squeeze. And you can do them deliberately like a workout. You can do 10 or 20 or 30 in a row, holding them for one, two, five seconds at a time, two or three sets a day. And that will keep those pelvic muscles strong because they will weaken like any other muscle weakens as we get older. And, and some people report that with stronger uh, Kegel uh, muscles, um, they may have a, a more intense feeling uh, ejaculation or orgasm. Um, but uh, certainly scientific studies show that focusing on those muscles do help improve the strength of erections. Well, Les, uh, we have a couple more minutes before we close down the podcast for some questions. Some of the questions from our listeners and viewers you have already answered. Uh, one of them says here, when does size become such an issue? is six inches too small. I think that size of the penis has always been an issue, um, you know, ever since uh, men have had penises. But it's really become, I think, a ridiculous issue since the advent of streaming porn. 
because uh, never before have so many men be, been able to see so many penises. Uh, as a urologist, I've seen thousands of penises because that's what I do for a living. Most guys only get to see other guys' penises when they're watching porn. And the thing about pornography is it's entertainment. Mm -hmm. And so the guys who were recruited to do porn have special attributes. <laughs> Just like the guys who are recruited to play in the NBA have physical attributes that other guys don't. They're a lot taller, right? They're a lot taller than the average guy. And the guys who are in porn are a lot bigger than the average guy. Six inches is not too small. In fact, it's a little bigger than average. The average penis size is actually a little under five and a half inches erect. So six inches is great. And normal is actually two standard deviations below five and a half to two standard deviations above five and a half inches. So the problem is we're given this um, expectation of normal that's based on fantasy or entertainment, just like women's bodies were so sexualized for so many years, but those physiques that were put on billboards and on television and streaming until very recently in our cultural history were really unrealistic. They were surgically augmented or they're the result of extreme uh, dietary restriction or both. Um, and you can change the size of your breast with an implant, and you can change the size of your belly with a tummy tuck, but you can't really effectively change the size of your penis. So it's important to know that your penis is normal in size because you really can't change the size of your penis anyway. And why be so, why be so obsessed and so upset about something that's actually normal? It's just you didn't know it because you were getting your information from a very bad source, which is porn. The other thing is when guys do see other guys' penises, it's usually when the other guy's penis is soft or flaccid. And we can be all different sizes when we're soft and be very similar sizes when we're hard. Some of us are showers. We're about the same hard and soft. Some of us are growers. And we get a lot of shrinkage when it's cold. And when it's uh, a nice inviting environment, we sprout right out. And so guys have to understand that if they're looking at another guy who is a lot bigger than they are soft, they may not get that much bigger hard, whereas they are likely to increase in size quite a bit from their soft to hard state. Important thing to keep in mind. Another, another question here says, when is masturbation too much? So, you know, masturbation is a normal, uh, is a normal behavior for human beings, men and women. But anything can be taken to an extreme or can be the result of some other problem. So, so a person can be uh, obsessive compulsive and they can compulsively masturbate. It's not that masturbation made them compulsive. It's just that they are masturbating compulsively because they have an obsessive compulsive personality disorder. Or a person masturbate obsessively because it's part of their pornography viewing, which is on a very frequent basis. The problem is when you start masturbating too much, and I'm talking about in extremes, um, you run the risk of not being able to have a satisfactory sexual experience with another human being. Some men may masturbate in a very idiosyncratic particular way, and it's only with that particular kind of stimulation that they can reach a sexual climax. For example, one example may be a guy may only be able to climax if he lays flat on a hard floor and rubs in a particular way. And it's only with that kind of stimulation that he can reach climax. 
but he can't with partnered sex with another human being. So wow. if masturbation is getting to the point where it takes a very specific type of masturbation and only that type of masturbation allows you to reach pleasure, then that's too much. You need to see a behavioral specialist, get some guidance, kind of reset your, your sexual pleasure uh, stimulation needs. And masturbation would not have you grow hair on your hands and it's not going to make your pee pee fall off. No, there is no negative effects from masturbation unless you mechanically hurt your penis doing it. But no, it doesn't lead to cancer, blindness, hair on your palms, impotence, uh, anything like that. And last question. I heard that putting your laptop on your lap adds radiation and heat to the testicles and this can affect sperm. Is this true? I think there have been studies that show that men who keep their laptops on their lap longer may have some measurable changes in their uh, sperm quality. And it makes sense um, just from the heat standpoint alone. Our testicles need to be uh, about two degrees cooler than our body temperature interiorly. That's why they hang outside of us. Because sperm require a slightly cooler temperature. Over eggs don't. Mm -hmm. So ovaries are in the body. That laptop is generating heat. It gets hot on your lap and it's right on top of your testicles and there's nowhere for them to go to escape it. So that added heat probably does have a, a mildly degrading effect over time. And so I do think it's a good idea to not keep your laptop on your lap for long periods of time. Now and then, I don't think it's a big deal. Also electromagnetic radiation that comes off of um, electronic uh, devices. Um, that has been shown in laboratory studies to have some negative impact on sperm in a Petri dish. Whether that really correlates to truly lower fertility rates and lower chance of having a baby, I don't know that that's been demonstrated convincingly. But nonetheless, something to consider, a reason why it's a good idea to take your laptop and put it on a table. Good idea to not keep your cell phone in your pocket all day long and put it on your desk, not sleep with it by your head. Uh, because these things, these things have effects. Can I say for sure? No, but there's enough evidence that there's some effect. Why not do something simple to keep it as safe as possible? And with that, I want to thank you so much for your time and for agreeing to be on the SoFlow Vegans podcast. And before we officially close, where can people find your book, find more about what you do? Where do we get all yeah. the deets? So... You can find my book easily on Amazon. That's uh, right. It's called, called The Penis Book, A Doctor's Guide to uh, Size, Function, and Everything in Between. Um, you can find me online at uh, AaronSpitz.com. And you can see a very interesting experiment that we did with the plant-based diet on sexual function in the movie The Game Changers, which is available on Netflix as well as other uh, platforms. And just in case you have trouble finding my book online, this is what it looks like. All right. Thank you, guys. It's my pleasure to be a part of this. And um, I look forward to lots of happy, healthy people out there with happy, healthy penises. Thank you, Dr. Spitz. Thank you. All right.